0: good morning everyone it is a genuine pleasure to be here this morning even more so than usual Um, I don't get what people enjoy about laying out a church I'll tell you Uh, especially not uh, if you're doing it for the reasons that uh, that I was doing it last week or that we all were uh, last week but so much appreciate all of your prayers and uh, encouragements cards food everything Uh, and very, very much appreciated, and uh, also um, those who, who filled in, uh, Chris was scheduled to preach anyway because I was supposed to be in Ukraine, and by the way, for those of you who are wondering, I am not there. I um, have had some uh, people all through the week say, I thought you were in Ukraine, and no, no, didn't make it, um, but I appreciate Chris and Steve and uh, and Ryan all filling in, and uh, I know doing a great job, and appreciate their... Um, their help and their input so much. Uh, really, uh, once again, God answered prayers about that, uh, that Ukraine trip. We're still frustrated about not getting to go. But uh, it would have been a whole lot worse to have become ill on the way. Uh, and so uh, we're thankful that uh, if, if it had to happen, that it happened before we left. And uh, now it's, uh, it's over with, and now I'm full of antibodies and uh, supposedly can walk on water, but we'll see about that. <laughs> You ever heard anybody ask you? Do you think we're living in the last days? I think in the last couple of years, a lot of people have thought that a lot of people have wondered it. Are we living in the last days? It's a loaded question though, isn't it? Uh, Because it depends on a lot of other things. Uh, Some other questions that have to be answered. One is, what do you mean by the last days? And uh, we always want to be sure what people are meaning when they say that, but even more, What does scripture mean when it talks about the last days? When Paul and other inspired writers make reference to the last days, what specifically are they talking about? And then the other question is, how do we know if we're living in the last days? But the reality is, is that the answer to the first question answers the second one. So we're gonna talk about that. What does the Bible mean when it talks about the last days? Well, it doesn't mean, I think, what most people think that it means, I think in most folks' minds, when they hear the expression the last days, they think about what's usually called the end times, the very last days, the very very end right before uh, the Lord comes again. But rather, uh, according to Scripture, the last days are already here. You and I are living in the last days. Paul was living in the last days. John was living in the last days. Because the last days, biblically speaking, has to do with that whole period of time from when Jesus first came to this earth until he comes again. That is God's final era of dealing with humanity. That is the final dispensation. It's not going to be another way of dealing with God or God's dealing with us. It's not going to be another way of salvation. There's not going to be another era. Uh, this is it. This is the one. And so we are living in the last days. Now how do we know that? Well look at Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2. You heard it read a few minutes ago where the writer begins uh, by saying that in, in various ways, God spoke of old to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us through a son. All right, so he's drawing a contrast between the period of the Old Testament when God was speaking through the prophets and now the last days when he speaks through his son. So clearly we are in the last days. Later in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6, He says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So, this is the final age. This is the end of the ages when Jesus has appeared to put away sin. In Acts chapter 2, verses 16 and 17, uh, Peter got up before that huge crowd on the day of Pentecost and began to explain to them about the phenomena that they had witnessed, the sound of the mighty rushing wind, and the tongues like fire appearing above the heads of the apostles, and their preaching in all the various languages. And he quoted uh, from the prophet Joel. He said, this is that which was uttered through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes from Joel. And here's what Joel said, that in the last days, god uh, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. So Peter says, this is that. This is what Joel was talking about. This, this is the last days. Uh, it is heralded now by the coming of God's Son and by the outpouring of his Spirit. So we are living in the last days. 1 Peter chapter 1, and verse 20 says, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who thre- through him are believers in God. God knew all along what he was going to do as a way of saving humanity from sin. But Jesus was manifested in the last times, he said. And then there's that very interesting statement in 1 John 2, in verse 18, where John says, children, it is the last hour, right? And you go from the last times to the last days to the last hour. But they all basically mean the same thing. John says, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, So now many antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. John was living in the last hour. And he said the way we know that is because all this opposition to Christ has come about. It's already come, there'll be more, but we are living in the last hour even now. So whether you refer to it as the last days, the end of the ages, the last times, or the last hour, you get the picture. The last days... now. You and I are living in the last days. That's certainly what Paul thought when he was writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3. He believed the last days were already underway. Now you look at verse 1 uh, and he says that in the last days will come these difficult times. Well, that kind of makes us think he's not talking about the present. He's throwing it into the future. These difficult times will come. But notice verse 5 as he describes how people are. He says to Timothy, avoid such people. Timothy has to avoid such people because they're already there. They're already present. So when he says that these difficult times will come, he's not saying necessarily they're going to come way down the road. He just says they're definitely going to come. And in fact, Timothy, they're already here. And he needed to avoid such people. And then beginning in verse 6, as he describes what some of these false teachers were doing, he speaks in the present tense. Here's what they are already up to. This is characteristic of the last days. So Paul was not so much predicting the future as he was analyzing the present. It's important to see that. He's not just saying this is what's going to happen later. He's saying this is what's happening now. And this is the kind of thing that you can expect to happen uh, from now on through the end until Jesus comes again. Now, look at what Paul says and how he describes these last days. He says they will be times of difficulty, times of difficulty. The King James translation says perilous times, perilous times. The New International Version says terrible times. J.B. Phillips, in his paraphrase, said they would be times full of danger. So we get the idea, don't we? We get the picture. It's not going to be good not going to be easy, it isn't going to be pretty. But notice the plural, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. I don't know that Paul believed, and I get the impression that he did not, but I don't know that Paul believed that the last days were all going to be just alike but rather that there were going to be times that were going to be more difficult than others. There would be times when there would be, uh, sin would be more rampant than at other times, and so there would be kind of cycles of this kind of thing. And so these times would come, and then they would go, and then they would come again. But in, that's what the last days are going to be like. That's what they're going to be characterized by. It is not ever going to be good, but at sometimes it will be worse than in others. Now, Paul wasn't deceived about the times he lived in. He wasn't at all deceived about the time. And he wasn't deceived about what lay ahead for God's people. And he didn't want Timothy to be deceived about it. Because as Paul writes 2 Timothy, he knows he's about to pass from the scene. He's about to leave. Uh, In the fourth chapter, he says, the time of my departure is at hand. He's not going to live much longer. And so he's passing the baton to Timothy And he wants Timothy to understand full well what he's dealing with. Here's the way it's going to be, Timothy. You're going to live in the last days. You're going to preach in the last days. You're going to help the church in the last days. So you better know what the last days are going to be like. And the same thing is true for us, isn't it? Because we're living in the last days, so we can't be naive about the last days. Uh, it's kind of hard to, to find anybody who is anymore, but uh, at times people have some, sometimes sort of had kind of a Pollyanna idea about things, that things are just going to get better and better. In fact, there was a whole doctrinal system for a while that just said that, you know, things are going to get better and better and better with the human race, and then when it can't get any better, then the Lord's going to come again. Well, they kind of gave that up after World War II. Uh, and, uh, and World War I and everything that went along with that. It made it kind of hard to believe that, that the world's getting better and better. And we entered the atomic age and it made it harder to believe that the world is getting better and better. We can't be naive about the world that we live in. The world is the world, it is what it is. It is God's world, it certainly is not all bad, but at the same time, people are what they are and the world is what, they, what it is. And we need to be aware of it, and we need to know it. Now look at the list of characteristics that Paul gives of how people will act in the last days. It's an awful list. Uh, He talks about things like brutality and disobedient to parents and, and people being hateful to one another and all kinds of things. But you can summarize this whole list by saying this. People in the last days will love the wrong things. People are going to love the wrong things in the last days. That's what's wrong with folks. They love the wrong things. The last days are the way they are because people love the wrong things. There's the old popular notion, you know, all we need is love. Well, that's not quite true. All we need is the love of the right things. Because if you don't love the right things, no matter what kind of love you have, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be healthy. People will always love something. People will always love something. The answer or the question is, what? What is it that people will love? Let me ask you this question right now, and it's for you to answer alone. But right now, what do you really love? What means the most to you in life? What is it about your life that is non-negotiable, that if you had to give up everything else but the one thing, what would the one thing be? That's how you know what you really love. If you think about your life as though you're packing your car for a trip, what's the one thing that you will be certain not to leave Behind. That tells you what you really, really love. There's a lot of variety in Paul's list when he talks about the things that people shouldn't love, but notice that he starts off the list talking about love and he ends the list talking about love. The problem is people love the wrong things, everything else. Is a matter of what is or is not loved. Now, there are three things Paul says that people generally love in the last days, and they don't surprise us a bit, do they? People will be lovers of self, he says, and lovers of money. That's in verse 2. In verse 4, he says they will be lovers of pleasure. Self, money, and pleasure. If you're looking for an unholy trinity, there it is. Self, money, and pleasure. There's nothing that's more characteristic of our times than the exaltation of the self. We've been told for a generation now that we are the ones individually, every individual is his or her own determinant of right or wrong. In fact, we're even told now that we can't say his or her determinant. You've got to figure out what pronoun people want to be called by. And then it's their determinant. Whatever it is that they determine is what's right. That is the ultimate exaltation of the self. It makes, the, makes self into a God. Do you remember when we used to have get togethers and people would take pictures of each other? What do we take now? Selfies. Yeah, selfies. I read a few years ago about a tourist in Yosemite National Park actually happened up there on that huge half dome peak, walked off of it backward, trying to, trying to get a better angle on what, on the cliff? No, on self, and just walked right off the cliff. We are so caught up with ourselves. We are so into self. The biggest question in people's minds is not what's good, what's true, what's right, but it's what do I like, what do I want. That's loving self. Then there's money. And money's a perennial favorite, isn't it? For some, money is a necessary evil. For others, it's their God. It dictates everything that they do. It's ironic, isn't it, that our money says on it, in God we trust. I've always found that kind of ironic. I'm glad it says it. But but it's a constant challenge, isn't it? In God we trust. Is it God that we trust in, or is it is it what the phrase is written on? What do we really trust? Our actions sometimes prove that it isn't God. And loving money is extremely dangerous. What did Paul say? He said the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money, he says, not money, but the love of it, is a root of all kinds of evils, he says. Now, what does that mean, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils? It means simply this, and you know that this is true, simply from observation. It means that there's not anything that some people won't do for money. There's not anything that some people won't do for money. We see examples of it, we hear examples of it in the news, Every single day, people do some of the most horrendous, unimaginable things for money. And we think, how in the world can you do that? When you love money, you will. When you love money, you'll do whatever it takes to get money. Now, we start off thinking, you know, well, I'll do some things I know aren't quite right. Maybe I'll cheat on my taxes or I'll lie a little bit in this business deal. Uh, But, you know, there's some things I wouldn't do for money. But you make a habit of doing those things and see what that leads to. Eventually, you'll be willing to do more and more and more in order to get money because you love money. Money is dangerous and cannot become the object of our love. It's so deadly because it puts us in spiritual jeopardy. Some have wandered away from the faith, Paul says, because of the love of money. Then there's pleasure, and that goes right along with loving self, doesn't it? Because when you love self, you don't want to deny yourself anything. And so uh, that's the reason that people spend so much time and money and effort simply on entertaining themselves. We think we can't go anywhere for a single moment without some means of entertaining ourselves. We've got to give ourselves pleasure. We think we have a right to that pleasure. Is it any wonder that we don't meditate on God's Word more? Is it any wonder we don't pray more? Is it any wonder that we don't spend more time in the Word of God because we're constantly seeking Pleasure. And as a result of that, uh, instead of thinking deeply about life and its meaning and our responsibility of living as God would have us to live, we're just seeking some more pleasure. And pleasure itself is addictive because once you've got a certain degree of pleasure, then you want more. And so you just become more and more desperate for more and greater pleasures. When you love pleasure, pleasure is what you will seek first, not the kingdom of God. Now, along with this list of what people love, self, money, and pleasure, Paul mentions two things that people in the last days don't love. He says they don't love that which is good, verse three, and they do not love God, verse four. They don't love that which is good, and they don't love God. You see, the two go hand in hand, because God is the source of all that's good. And so if you don't love that which is good, you're not going to love God, and if you don't love God, you're not gonna love that which is good. Have you ever wondered why so many people today claim that they don't believe in God? And why so many of them claim not just to not believe in God, but they are so angry that other people do? They're so hostile toward the faith of other people. Isn't it because they want to do things that they know aren't right? They want to do things that God says are wrong. And so rather than examine their own lives and change their lives, they say, well, then I don't believe in God. And I don't believe in the Bible. And I don't believe in what the church teaches and what the church says. And I don't believe in in the lives that Christians live, and they get, they get hostile about all those things. You see, it isn't just that people don't believe anymore. It's that they hate belief. They hate goodness. They hate goodness because they do not love God. And then they wonder why their lives are so chaotic because everything is turned on its head. Instead of loving God and loving that which is good, people love themselves and they love pleasure and they love money. Well, let me ask you another question here. When Paul says people, in verse two, that in the last days people will be lovers of self, and money, and pleasure, and not lovers of goodness and lovers of God, is he talking about people in general? Or do you think he's talking about the church? Now that's an important question. And we need to think about it for a moment. If you look in the various commentaries, you'll find their opinions are divided. Some say Paul's thinking solely about the church here. Others say no, he's thinking about the world in general. Uh, And some are uh, not quite certain which way that it is. Notice verse two. In some of the older translations, it says uh, in the the last days, men will be lovers of self and so forth. But Paul's using the more generic word for mankind or people uh, in general. And so he may be thinking about the the Gentile world, uh, that world that was dominated by paganism. That Gentile world described so eloquently in Romans 1, verses 18 to 31, uh, when Paul describes the way people have turned away from God. Why? Uh, Because they want to do things that are not right. And so they reject the knowledge of God. They put the, the knowledge of God out of their minds and they pursue that which uh, is wrong. So maybe that's what he's talking about. I really think in 2 Timothy 3 that Paul's talking about both. Here's what I think his big concern is in 2 Timothy 3. His big concern is this. The world is already this way. The world in the last days is already filled with folks who love the wrong things. But his big concern is that the church will follow suit. His big concern is that the church will be shaped by the world instead of shaping the world through the gospel. I think that's his big concern here. He speaks of how people in general will be, but then in verse 5, he says to Timothy, avoid such people. Why? Because they're already present. They're already there. They're already in the churches. They are already sowing the seeds of unbelief and immorality. They're already leading people astray, as he goes ahead to describe beginning in verse six. They're doing all these things already. So it's the it's the church working its way into or the world working its way into the church that Paul is having such concern about here. Notice also in verse five, he talks about people having the appearance of godliness, but denying the power of godliness. Now what does that mean, having the appearance appearance of godliness but denying the power of godliness? It could mean one of two things. It could refer to a church that's lost its way. It could refer to a church that uh, through various uh, pressures socially and and morally and otherwise still holds on to the forms of its religion, its forms of its faith, but it denies the power. In other words, it's still using the right language, still talking about God and about Jesus and about the Spirit and about scripture and all those other things, still going through all the right motions, still doing the things that they ought to to do at least outwardly. And yet at the same time, having no confidence in the power of God working in the lives of people. Having no concept of the power of the gospel to take people's lives and turn them from darkness to light. To bring them from lostness to salvation. The power of the gospel to transform people. And and the power of worship to lift up and exalt God and have an influence on other people. They just hold on to the form, but they've lost that. And so the religion that they practice becomes empty. It becomes hollow. There's a lot of that around, isn't there? There are churches all over the place that at one time had a vibrant faith, really believed what they say, but you can tell they don't anymore. And sometimes if you ask them, they'll tell you they don't anymore. We just don't don't know what else to say. We don't know what else to do. But we don't believe that anymore. We don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus anymore. We don't believe that he's going to come again anymore. We don't believe that God is at work in his world anymore. We just keep saying those things. That could be what Paul means by holding the form of religion but denying the power of it. But here's another possibility. It could refer to a church that exists for the purpose of looking like the real thing with no intention of being that. It could refer to a church that makes people believe that it is the real thing, yet it has the goal of keeping people from becoming the self-giving, God-honoring, godly living people that God wants them to be. It could be a church that has become an instrument of its own society and is being used as a way of shaping people into the image of the world deliberately. It hasn't lost anything. It never had it. A generation ago, Donald Guthrie, in commenting on this passage in 2 Timothy 3, says this, Indeed, it is not simply a matter of the organized religion which has ceased to function, but a religion which is not intended to function, a religion that's not intended to function. James Thompson, commenting on these verses, sees Paul as speaking exclusively of the church in its corrupted state. And he says this. Paul's warning is a reminder that education is not always beneficial for the church. He knows that not all Christian educators are nurturing the church toward healthy lives, since some forms of instruction are nothing more than a duplication of what the pagans are teaching. The result is that Christians' lives only mirror the moral condition of the wider society. Folks, when that happens, we are indeed in trouble. When that happens, then we indeed know the power of the last days. There are times of difficulty. Now, whether that describes the church at Glen Allen or not depends on one thing it depends on what you and I love. That's it. It just depends on what we love. If we love the wrong things, then there's no way that we can be what God wants us to be. It's not possible. If we don't love what God wants us to love, if we don't love the the things that God says we should love, we cannot possibly be the people that God wants us to be. On the other hand, if we love the right things, if we love God and what is good, We cannot go wrong. We will make mistakes. We will not do everything right. But at the same time, we will be his people. And we will bear witness to him and to his son in this world. But only if we love the right things. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about some of the things that God's word says we ought to love, that we must love. If we want to be His people in this world and not just have an appearance of godliness, but truly be living by the power of God. But it starts with each one of us individually. It's not something we vote on as a group. It starts with our individual decision to turn to Christ, to trust in Him alone, to be united with Him in baptism. To live for him and not for self, to spend our lives as his servants. That's where it starts. That's the beginning of loving the right things. If you're ready to start loving the right things today, we want to encourage you to come and we'll help you do that. Let's stand together and sing. I must needs go home by the